If you've ever wanted to read more, but you just don't have time to do it, well, I'm like that too, and that's what this is all about, the 30-second book club. I'm Andy, and every week we just get to connect with another author about their book and find out a little bit more about why they wrote it. And this week we're hanging out with Ben Corson, who wrote an incredible book called Optimisfit. So if you love it, be sure to like and comment and subscribe and do all those things that you're supposed to do when you're on the interwebs. Thanks. Who are you, and how did you get to the point to write this book called Optimisfit? Yeah, well, I gave my first message in third grade, began speaking regularly at 16 and became a pastor my senior year of high school. So I've been doing this a long time. And uh, the reason I wrote this book is because I'm seeing a need uh, for our generation to have hope. Sociological data and research shows us that we're the most depressed generation on record. So I wrote Optimisfits to ignite a fierce rebellion against hopelessness. Early in the book, you talk about how you went through depression and, and, and what did that look like for you and how did you get to the other side of it? Yeah, well, one of the reasons I was so depressed is because I felt the need to present an image to the world that wasn't who I truly am. And when I finally stopped apologizing for not being what other people expected, I found so much more joy. And really this quote sustained me that we'll have our nightmares and we'll have our dreams, but we conquer our nightmares because of our dreams. So I believe the power of my dreams was stronger than the proverbial nightmares I was weathering. And as I delighted myself in the Lord, I knew he promised to give me the desires of my heart. And that kept me going through the difficult times uh, during situations that were painful. That promise was pain fuel for me to keep going to my destiny. I thought it was kind of interesting. I love the story that you shared about James Garfield just talking about reliving those past hurts. Oh, yeah. James Garfield, I mean, he was shot in the back after he became president, six months after he became president. And uh, he didn't die from the original gunshot wound. He would have actually been just fine. But back then they thought that you had to, like, do surgery and extract the bullet from a body in order for the person to survive. So Alexander Graham Bell invented an electrical device to try to, like, find the bullet. And uh, James Garfield actually died shortly after he was shot not because of the gunshot wound, but because of all the probing they did around the wound to try to extract the bullet because they didn't understand uh, that that medical side of technology back then. And so I always like to encourage people, sometimes it's not the wound itself that will kill you. It's all the pessimistic probing into those wounds that kill us in the end. I love how you talk about, there's, I mean, this whole, so much of this book is about hope. In, the, in one of the chapters talking about hope is dope, you talk about, the Bible was given to us that we might have hope. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that because I think a lot of people look at the Bible and say, well, that's just a bunch of rules. Oh, gosh, yeah, that drives me crazy. The Bible's not a rule book. It's a hope book. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors, 14 of which were written by Paul. And in Romans 15, 4, Paul said, now these things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul said they wrote the Bible to give us hope. That means if we walk away from a Bible study with less hope rather than more hope, it's a giant exercise in missing the point because our message is not the blues. It's the good news. Let's talk a little bit about prayer. This is from your chapter talking about prayers at midnight. And I thought this was really cool because sometimes this is something I, I really struggle with, too, of, you know, uh, am I praying the right way? How do I do it? If, if I prayed this way or that way, God would answer more of them. You know what's wild is research has now found that when you pray, when you talk intentionally to God, the frontal lobe of your brain activates into its highest intellectual capacities and you boost your brain intelligence. So you actually get smarter by praying. And uh, praying has the same therapeutic benefits as going to a psychiatrist. So, and it's free, which is awesome. So when you talk about your hopes, 
your fears and your dreams and you express that to God, it has an incredibly cathartic effect on your brain. So it's actually really beautiful that this is what research is now showing us about prayer. So then you talk about uh, a lot about failure and a lot about the people, you know, about, about all these people in history that, that failed. And then on the other side, they were very successful. What, what, what's your favorite story from that chapter talking about failure? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Seuss's first book was rejected by 27 different publishers. Thomas Edison was told by a school teacher he was too stupid to learn anything. Beethoven was told by his music teacher he was a hopeless composer. Abraham Lincoln lost an embarrassing eight elections. Winston Churchill failed sixth grade. And Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. So, like, that, that was literally why he was fired. So I like to encourage people, we might fail, but God's love never fails, and that's what counts. Going to your chapter talking about weak is the new strong, uh, I love the idea. This is something I struggle with a lot. I really avoid conflict. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid to offend people. I'm afraid to have enemies. But you talk about how, you know, you, you, that you need almost need to have enemies, right? Winston Churchill said, if you have enemies, good. It means you stood up for something at some time in your life. And actually, this is really encouraging. Research shows us that 25% of the people you meet will never like you. The, other, the second set of 25% of people you meet don't like you but might change their mind. The third set of 25% of people you meet do like you, but might be persuaded not to. And the fourth set of 25% of people you meet will always like you no matter what, but that has to include your mother. So she has to like you. But basically when I read that study, I got really encouraged because if there are people who don't like me, that's just part of the statistics. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. So I'm just going to focus on the people who are for me and, and just love on the people who are against me, but not take it too seriously. I thought it was interesting when you talked about you know, loving your enemy and turning the other cheek. It means way more than we think in our Western culture, you know, what that meant in Jesus' time. Absolutely. Because back then, if when Jesus said, if, if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek, he specifically used the word right cheek. And the reason that's important is because um, most people are right-handed. In fact, in ancient Hebrew culture, it was a curse to be left-handed. Um, so in order as a right-handed man to, to, to slap somebody on the right cheek, you'd have to backhand them. And a backhand was considered twice as insulting in that culture as hitting somebody with the flat of the hand. So you would only like backhand a slave or somebody beneath you on the, the hierarchical ladder. So ultimately, when Jesus was saying, turn the other cheek, he was saying, now you have to hit, slap me on the left cheek, which means you are royally ticked at me, but now you have to hit me as an equal. So when you actually love your enemies that way, you go on the moral high ground and you actually put yourself on equal footing rather than being a doormat. So it's, it, that's why weak is the new strong. It's a very, very powerful teaching. It's called third way wisdom. I was reading your um, chapter about the unedited me, and this is another one that just really spoke to me. Now, how do we, how do we resist trying, because I mean, you're a pastor and uh, here on air on a Christian radio station, I have to resist this all the time too. How do we resist trying to look like a good Christian and actually be authentic? Yeah, people are impressed by our strengths, but they connect with our weaknesses. And I think the older generation loved to just see a pastor who had all the answers and who had it all together. But this new generation doesn't look at it that way. Like we see too much fake on social media. So we want some vulnerability and honesty because I believe our scars become our stars and the weaknesses that we share become lighthouses for other people who are headed toward the same rocks we hit. Let I me mean, notice Jesus. He didn't just say, hear my words. He told Thomas, touch my wounds. 
and the wounds that we share can be healing balm for other people. Okay, so I was wrestling with this when you wrote it, and I thought, I loved it, but I want to hear, maybe you can go a little deeper. So you said the meaning of life in one sentence is, he created you for the highest of all purposes, to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. Oh, yes. That is, that's, that's probably my favorite part of the book. Because I believe that God doesn't endure you. He enjoys you. That's what Zephaniah 3.17 says in the Bible. It says the Lord rejoices over you with joy. And so many people think God endures me. No, God enjoys you. In fact, in the catechisms, the theologians said that our destiny in eternity is to enjoy God forever. And that's how the book of Revelation ends, like us enjoying God in a garden city in a new Jerusalem. So I believe that we should find anything that isn't heaven on earth and utterly destroy it that his kingdom of heaven should come to earth down below, even as it is above, and invite people onto this journey, into this journey of realizing that the purpose of our life is to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. We don't have to behave to get saved. We just believe to receive. Woo to the who. Yay, God, this is awesome. We just celebrate, and all that's left for us to do is receive this free gift. <laughs> I love it, man. Okay, so one more, just just to piggyback off that. At the, at the end of the book, you talk about a lot of people ask you, how can I get closer to God? What do you say to them? Uh, you can't. <laughs> because if you are the temple for the Holy Spirit and God lives inside you, how can you get any closer to a God who's already living inside you? So rather than trying to like earn closeness to God, just accept his closeness. Just be aware that he's already here, near, and dear. And when you have an awareness of his thereness, then suddenly you don't have to try to like strive to get closer to God. You can just let God love on you because he's already living inside you. One more side thing. Um, I, you know, I graduated college and then I got t- I didn't want to read anymore, right? Because I got burned out from reading so much. And so I'm, now I'm getting back into it. So I love, uh, you know, you talking about, you know, all the stuff that you're reading. And now it's like, well, now I got to go back and read, you know, all the, I, I, don't, I don't even remember all the guys that you're talking about. You know, who is the biggest... Who would you say I should start with if I want to go back and kind of just really um, maybe an author of to, you know, for philosophy or faith or, you know, who, who should I start? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No question. Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. He has a chapter. A, a lot of what I wrote about in Optimus Fits comes from and I quoted a lot comes from that book. Like he has a chapter in that book called Ethics of Elfland, which is one of my favorite titles of all time. And uh, he, he talks about, like, the childlike wonder of, of what the faith was supposed to look like. So it's called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. It's kind of a dense read, but it's also really fun. And um, if you want to, like, take it a step deeper, I think that's your vibe. 